on this episode of Jeff Does Vegas. Uh, number one, you have to be a consumer advocate. That's that that's got to be your 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 mission statement. Walking into every restaurant, uh, writing every review, giving and now like on social media, giving every opinion. You're not there to talk about what you like and dislike, and that's what a Yelper is. You're there uh, on behalf, you're the eyes, ears, and taste buds of the consumer, trying to tell them where best to spend their dining out dollars. Las Vegas. It's more than just a city. It's a feeling. It's that feeling of excitement when you spot the lights of the strip out the airplane window. It's that feeling of awe as you stroll down the boulevard, taking in the sights and sounds. And it's that feeling of satisfaction knowing that you're in the greatest city in the world. Over 42 million people from around the world share that feeling every year. And I'm one of them. Taking you to the world-famous Vegas Strip and beyond, my name is Jeff, and this is Jeff Does Vegas. Welcome to episode number 157 of Jeff Does Vegas. Before we get rolling for this episode of the podcast, I just want to thank everyone for checking out the Vegas Book Club series of special episodes that were released over the last few weeks. It was a lot of fun going back and resharing conversations that I've had with some of the incredible authors who've appeared on the show. Hopefully, you got some great ideas for reading material to add to your own personal Las Vegas libraries. If you haven't listened as of yet, jump into the archives at jeffdoesvegas.com or search out Vegas Book Club on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere else you get your podcasts. As anyone who's a regular listener to the podcast knows, I absolutely love food. In fact, sharing my restaurant experiences from my Vegas vacations is one of my favorite parts of putting together my trip report episodes. So anytime I have the opportunity to have someone on the show to talk about food, I will jump at that chance. Joining me for this episode of the podcast is Las Vegas restaurant and food critic, John Curtis. John has been living in Las Vegas since the early 1980s and started writing about the Vegas food and restaurant scene in the mid-1990s. He's the author of the book, Eating Las Vegas, The 52 Essential Restaurants, and he's the creator of the Eating Las Vegas blog at eatinglv.com. John's made numerous TV and radio appearances in the Vegas area. He's been a judge on several episodes of Top Chef Masters and Iron Chef America, and he's the co-host of the food podcast, Eat, Talk, Repeat. John and I talked about how he became a food and restaurant critic, how the Vegas food scene has changed over the years, and what the future holds for Las Vegas when it comes to restaurants and cuisines. John was also kind enough to share some of his favorite and not-so-favorite dining experiences. Please enjoy my conversation with John Curtis. Well, I was a lawyer by trade, and, and uh, I've been an attorney uh, so since the late 70s. And uh, I was a criminal attorney back in the day. I ended up uh, morphing into a civil business lawyer. Uh, so I've been an attorney now for over 40 years. But back then, I came to Las Vegas to practice law. I was my... I was chasing a gal <laughs> who became my wife and then my ex-wife great gal but uh you know it was marriage it didn't work out but um so i came to vegas in 81 i always like to say it was back then it was the town that taste forgot okay it was just just a um uh, it was a vegas wasn't cool in 1981 okay it'd be people uh forget that it was uh they vegas's heyday 
had really been about 20 years earlier, back in the, the 50s and the 60s. And, and by, by the early 70s, you know, the time of fear and loathing in, in Las Vegas, I think it said in 1972, Vegas was a distinctly uncool place. And, uh, and that was the Vegas I came to in 1981 when it was the purview, when it was the, 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 the stomping grounds of Wayne Newton in his prime and Bobby Vinton and, and uh, circus orangutan acts and, and uh, you know, buffets. It was just tacky as tacky could be back then. And the food and the food offerings were not much better. Yeah, back at that time, Vegas, as you say, I think people kind of forget it wasn't really the hip party destination. It was it was kind of a place where in the world of entertainment, it was almost a place where entertainers went when their careers were dead at that time. Yeah, it, it, yeah, it was it was definitely that. And um, uh, it was a, a matter of uh, it, you always got people on their way. I think the, 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 the cliche back then was you got people on their way up or the way down. You know what I mean? The the lounge acts that yet to hit big, the comedians that were were, were yet to become, you know, the, the David Letterman's and the Jerry Seinfeld's and all those late of the 80s when they took off. But it was definitely like old school, you know, George Goble. I mean, you know, I mean, Charo. I mean, it was just, it was, I mean, and then, then the showrooms were just, I, I remember just, just rolling my, Elvis impersonators were everywhere, okay, everywhere back then. And, uh, uh, it was just, it was just not, not a cool place at all. And not, really throughout the eighties, throughout the seventies and eighties, that was, that was the lean time. It was still Las Vegas. There were still casinos. My dad and his generation, the post-war generation, they love coming here to gamble and all that, but it was, it was, it was not a cool place for baby boomers like me. And so what got you into becoming a food critic and a, and a restaurant critic. I mean, I assume you were, you were always a food guy, you like good food. And so what sort of transpired to say, Hey, you know what? I'd like to go into that world. Well, as I like to say, you know, I've many times I've quoted myself <laughs> in the, in the land of the blind, the one-eyed man is king. And I looked around and I, uh, I had lived in New York and Connecticut and spent a lot of time in, in, uh, in the New York City restaurant scene, about five years. And um, I looked around in 1992 was when the late 1992 is when Wolfgang Puck first opened Spago in the forum shops here, December 11th, 1992, the date that seared into my brain. And I, and I was, I was a foodie, 20 years before anybody ever heard that term. I mean, it was just, you know, that I started cooking food. I started cooking food and reading Bon Appetit magazine in law, in uh, law school. It was a way to get chicks. <laughs> I mean, because I was broke as a student, but I went, Hey, you know, I, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a poor starving student here, but, I, but I love food. My dad was a restaurant goer. So I kind of had it in my bones to love good restaurants. He was, he was just a meat and potatoes Greek. But wow, he was a successful businessman also. So we had toured the country more than once as a kid. And he would go to all these places like when we were in Miami or Chicago or Los Angeles. I didn't the Los Angeles, uh, the Brown Derby when it looked like a hat. I mean, I went to Ernie's in San Francisco when I was just 10 years old. Uh, so I was acquainted with good restaurants. 
And I had this in me because my dad loved the theater of good restaurant. And I think that really got, got, uh, got soaked in with me. It was in my DNA. And even as a child, as a preteen. And then, um, I started cooking in law school and I, uh, and I, I started pouring over cookbooks and magazines. And I, my sister got me a, a subscription to Bon Appetit magazine. And, um, and I remember being passionate about food and cooking throughout the 80s, spent a lot of time in the New York scene and uh, on New York restaurants. And I looked around Vegas in 1992 and went, I think we're on the cusp of a big food revolution here because I Wolfgang Puck came to town, a bunch of big chain steakhouses. They're now cliches, but when Palm and Morton and Ruth's Chris Steakhouse came to town, that was a big deal because that was the first time people got outside of casinos to eat but but before that in the 50s 60s 70s and 80s the 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 the, the template the format was get them in a casino keep them in a casino and nobody thought good restaurants would work outside of casinos because of this capture the customer mentality that was all pervasive in las vegas so i th- saw uh, i was on the vegas was on the cusp of something great and um and I decided to start writing about it. And I thought, you know, I love to cook. I was already a lawyer. I've been a lawyer for 10 years at that point, more than. And I could write. And I thought, let's start writing about food and restaurants in this town. Nobody else is doing it. And indeed, for the first seven years, I had the territory all to myself. I mean, uh, it was crazy. The 90s, there was nobody writing about food in Las Vegas but me. That's kind of in, insane to think about in the 21st century where there's an influencer on every corner. But but, but back then, it was it was... I was just kind of this little voice in the wilderness chirping about, hey, we're about, we just got Wolfgang Puck here. We're getting better steakhouses. Uh, Emerald Lagasse, the, the BAM guy from the Food Network is about to come to town. I was the guy just saying, this is a big deal, folks. And nobody was else but me was doing it back then. So that's kind of the, that's the short version of how I got into it. It was not easy, but, uh, but uh, uh, to convince people, but once I convinced uh, the National Public Radio, NPR, to put me on the air. Then I got a bunch of magazine gigs and writing gigs. And uh, and this was you know, old school media when you were doing all, all the, you know, dead tree media. But uh, I had the territory to myself for like seven years. I, I want to talk about life as a as a critic and 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 doing that. Do, do you have a, a specific philosophy or approach that you you take to your work as a, a food and restaurant critic? In my day, my philosophy was to write about food, you have to know about food. And to know about food and, and, and to gain the kind of credibility that you want to have and the kind of gravitas you want to have with your readers. Uh, number one, you have to be a consumer advocate. That's, that, that's got to be your, 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 your mission statement walking into every restaurant uh, writing every review, giving and now like on social media, giving every opinion. Uh, you're not there to talk about what you like and dislike, and that's what a Yelper is. Okay, you're there. You know, once once you gain a certain amount of credibility as a media person, you're there uh, on behalf. You're the eyes, ears, and taste buds of the consumer, trying to tell them where best to spend their dining out dollars. So that's my overarching philosophy. And and uh, and uh, you know, too much of influencing now these days. We'll get to this later. Is is all about just. Uh, it's all about marketing. You're just it's there. Look at my clicks. Oh my God. Look, I got 5,000 people liking my thing. Well, you know, that's okay. 
<laughs> that's 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 one that's that's one method of trying to make money off of, of of having an opinion about food. But what you really are is just a marketer. Not not a, I'm in the opinion game, not in the marketing game, advertising game. So that and and the other thing I would say to the young uh, to the youngsters and the people who come up behind me is you have to you can't just talk about what you like. I mean, again, you have to know about food. You have to read a lot. You have to eat a lot. You cook a lot. Travel a lot. I mean, if you don't do all of those things all the time, I mean, you can't call yourself a, a food journalist or a food writer. You can, you can call yourself an influencer. You can call yourself a oh, look at me. I'm look at me. I'm I got 150,000 people watching me. You know, do a cheese ball or you know, or, or munch on this giant lobster tail. You know what I mean? Yeah, you can be that guy or that girl. Uh, but, uh, you know, you know, th- th- there's no real respect there. It's just kind of, you're, you're just a clown kind of going to performing, you know, for, for people to say they like what they see. And, uh, so that eating a lot, cooking a lot, you know, read a lot. You've got to read a lot about food and people. First thing I asked somebody, they say, oh, I want to be a food critic. I went, do you ever read about food? Do you ever pick up a magazine and read an article about, you know, what makes a good clam chowder, you know, or the difference between good pizza dough and bad pizza dough. I mean, not just what pizzas you like, you know what I mean? Do you really get into it? You know, do you, uh, do, do you, do you know anything about the political landscape? Do you know anything about, you know, how the oceans are being depleted by, by, by trawling fishermen and trawling like that, you know, how they raise oysters, you know, uh, uh, you know, why certain rices are coming back into, I mean, you've got to, you have to have this depth of knowledge that you just don't get. By going online and then talking about, you know, what you like and what you don't like. It's a, it's a good philosophy to have, though. And I, I've used similar philosophies that when people have asked me about getting into podcasting and 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 trying to get into that. And so many people say, I want to start a podcast. And I always say, pick something that you know something about and you know in depth and you can talk about at length and you you can be passionate about. I, I always use and it kind of ties into the food side of things. I always joke about the mashed potato podcast. And I always say, you know, if you're passionate about mashed potatoes, somebody else probably is too, but go in depth on those mashed potatoes, learn about where the potatoes come from. Are they Idaho potatoes or Prince Edward Island potatoes? Do you know, go in depth on these things and learn about these things. And, and and people kind of think, Oh, I just kind of thought I could sit down and start talking into a microphone and, and people will listen. And that's that. And it sounds like it's kind of very similar, as you say, when it comes to the, the the food critic game, yeah, you got you got to dive deep, and I mean, and, and people don't want to dive deep anymore. You know, this videofication of of, of the world. I don't know. You know, I mean, I, I sound like an old fart, and I know I'm an old fart at this point. But everything is not just just chewing gum for the for the eyes. Okay, everything is not just mindless brain candy. The t- giving you TikTok brain. I know it's fun to do it. I mean, I have two sons like your age, you know, and, and one's in his 30s, one's in his early 40s. And uh, yeah, my, my younger one, you know, the, he and his wife, they're, they're where I used to watch, you know, when I was a kid or a young man, I would watch, you know, you know, I don't know what I watched back in the day, you know, the Rockford Files or, or, or the Beverly Hillbillies or whatever the hell I watched back in the day. They sit around and watch TikTok videos. That's what they do all day long, all night long. And I, I don't know. And he says, oh, you can learn things on TikTok videos. I guess you can. I don't know. I mean, but uh, you can't really learn about food on TikTok videos. Mm-hmm. You can learn about cheese pulls and, you know, 
big-breasted Asian girls, you know, taking down five-pound pizzas. Yeah, that's what you get. You that's what you can learn about food on, on TikTok. You know, it, it's a. I, I guess you can learn to cook. I he, my, my my younger son, give him. He said that there are some good videos where they can really show you, you know, how to, you know, fold a puff pastry dough or, you know, make a good omelet, things like that. So I'm not, I don't want to be totally dismissive of it. But if that's all you're doing is watching videos, uh, you are just, your your knowledge is going to be a mile wide and an inch deep. When you go out to do a review and you go out to a restaurant, is there anything specific that you focus on? I mean, are you focused on the food, the atmosphere, the service, or just kind of the overall experience of, of everything? Well, uh, that's, a, that's, a, that's a really good question because I, I've gotten in arguments with people for years. You get to a point when you're in so many restaurants all the time that you really do not think about service the same way a civilian thinks about service. You just do not. I mean, I'm, I'll notice really, really bad service uh, when it's just when it's sloppy or amateurish or extremely slow, but you kind of it, it's to me it's almost like white noise in in your head. You just kind of put it out out of there because you're there to think about the food. Because again, to repeat myself, you're kind of there to tell people whether spending this money in this restaurant is worth it or not, versus going somewhere else. Is this the best chili dog in town? You know, or should you go to that taco truck or that taco truck? Even something as plebeian as that, that, that you, you have to look at it like that. And uh, uh, thinking about service and then you know, people, I, I'm on a podcast too, uh, shameless plug alert, eat, talk, repeat <laughs> on all platforms. Uh, and we argue about this a lot with my co-host because most people go in, service is everything. And I know really sophisticated people who dine out a lot who go, oh, my gosh, to them, the, the welcome is what they look for. You know, the promptness is the water glass being refilled. Did they did they uh, did they present the plates in, in one? Did they only bring the check when requested? You know, was the waiter knowledgeable and solicitous at the right time without being overbearing? Blah, 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 blah. And I just I just tune all that shit out. <laughs> I just kind of go, you know, uh, give me the food. (laughs) I'm going to tell you whether this omelet is well made or not, okay? Because you know what? I've eaten about 5,000 omelets in my life, and I can pretty much tell you whether this is a good omelet or not not, not a good omelet or not. So what is it then that makes for an exceptional experience for you when you go to a restaurant? What sets that apart from, say, an average experience for you? Well, I I think at this point in my life, I look for for food that from the first bite, or even when it hits the table, I go, uh, there was some real love and passion behind this. Okay. I'm, I'm, I'm kind of looking to taste that commitment of what is the restaurant doing well, what it intends to do. I mean, so many restaurants just want to be want to be judged on their intentions, not the results. So whether it's a pizza parlor or it's a haute cuisine place in Paris, you know, when that, when I see the, when the dish hits the plate or it comes to the table, I'm kind of going, I'm sizing it up even before I take my first bite. Like how much care and, and, and passion and technique went into this dish. And I mean, just the other night, I went to a, 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 we'll get to it in a a bit about 
uh, just a hidden gem in, in, in a, in an off strip hotel, a Chinese place. Someone told me I knew the owner had run really good Chinatown restaurants before. And, and the, the, the lobster pasta came to the table and the, and these garlic shrimp and the, just as they were coming to me, I went, holy shit, this is really good. This is way next level presentation over any kind of Chinese restaurant you're liable to just stumble into in a neighborhood Chinese restaurant. And sure enough, I mean, it didn't, now it looked great. It tasted great. You could, and I, and I, and I asked, I, I finally, I talked to the owner and they said, Oh, we've got this incredible uh, Cantonese seafood chef back there. And I went, yeah, I mean, you know, you can just tell, you know what I mean? It was great. It, so, so it's that what I, that's what I focus on. And yeah, I mean, you know, yes, I, service can be bad and I get grumpy about some things, uh, but, but I don't, I try not to give people bad marks. I know how hard it is. I worked in restaurants as a kid. I know how hard it is in restaurants and, and, you know, getting all upset over little service flaws here and there. Well, they didn't clean my, they, they didn't clear my plate on time. You know, it's like, uh, you know, okay, fine. Look, if, if they're all standing over there smoking cigarettes, you can be mad about that. But, but, if, but, if, but, if, but if you see like three or four hardworking bussers and waiters just busting their ass to do things and maybe, maybe a few things are not getting to you soon enough, you got to give them a break. You know, I'm very sympathetic to the way staff that way. How do you handle a negative experience? I mean, you, you've eaten in thousands and thousands of meals and thousands and thousands of restaurants. How do you handle that negative experience when you go out? Do you do you provide feedback to the the manager or the owner at the time? Do you hold off on it? Do you wait until you've published that review or put out that podcast? How how do you handle that? Well, first of all, again, this gets into my philosophy. I don't pick on the little guys. If I have a terrible experience at a at a mom and pop where I don't know anybody there, I just went in and I'm like, oh, this is awful. You know, this is just ridiculously bad. I'll just write it off. I don't, I don't, I don't write about it. I wouldn't, I wouldn't put it on my blog. And back, you know, back in the day when I was writing for Dead Tree Media, I wouldn't, I wouldn't write, go out of my way to say, you know, don't go to to to, to Ginny and Joe's uh, neighborhood pizzeria because it's terrible. Because you know, people like it, they like it. It's not. So you don't pick on the little guy. The strip is fair game. Celebrity chefs are fair game. Okay, so if um, so, let's bifurcate my my response that way. Mom and pops, you just ignore. You don't even talk to them. If you know the owner, or they ask you what you thought, and this happens more than you think. I I'll try to. And this is why I love to have the food gal, my wife, with me because she's very good at tempering me. I can be a little gruff sometimes. Um, I'll just say, you know, I'm I'm sorry, but this dish just didn't work for me. I'm sorry. I mean, you know, you call this, you know, whatever you call it, fettuccine Alfredo, or you know, you know, or 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 a burrito taco. It's just it's fatty. It was not very good. I'll try to tell them that in as nice a way as possible and leave it at that. But the trouble with restaurateurs is they work so hard and they're very close to it, and the, the profit margins are so low. They don't take criticism real well. I mean, they, they, they want to be told it's good. And, and, and you have to sympathize with them there because they're working really hard. But when they're not hitting their marks, you know, I don't want to, um, I, I have to choose my words very carefully. You know, uh, uh, so I've had bad, I mean, I've, I've had terrible meals on the strip. I can go through a few of them. Lago, you know, the steakhouse of Circus Circus, Lago at Bellagio. 
where I just walked out and went, you know, literally just went, yeah, you know what? I'm going to go back on my blog or on social media and just give it to them with both barrels. Okay. They're char- charging top dollar. They got the, the economic and marketing muscle of these giant hotels behind them. And if they're ripping people off, I'm not talking to anybody to try to, you know, pat them on the hand and be nice to them. I'm just going to say, Hey, look at, you know, you're just, this is a tourist trap and, and, and tourists need to know that. So. I, I, I want to come back to the, the steakhouse at Circus Circus because my oh. wife and I ate there back in December of last year and had a really good experience and, and really enjoyed our meals. And, and I'm a steak guy. My, I, I'm, I'm a pretty decent cook and a pretty decent steak cooker, particularly. And my theory on going out for steak is I don't want to spend a bunch of money on a steak and then eat it and go, I could have cooked that better myself. So, I mean, we've been to Oscars and we've been to Golden Steer and everybody had always told us, you got to go try the steakhouse at Circus Circus. So we did, and we had a really good experience, but I read your blog post about it and you did not have the good experience. Well, well, I just think it's it's become a tourist trap. Yeah. And here's my thing, Jeff. And, and, And they're now charging like, top dollar for meat and and i eat all these steakhouses and las vegas has fantastic steakhouse i'm sure you have some i mean you've got a lot of great beef in canada so i'm sure you 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 know a good steakhouse um but there are superior steakhouses here by jose andres's bizarre meat and um uh wolfgang puck has cut uh and there uh, delmonico by uh emerald legacy those are just the ones prime in the bellagio uh oscars downtown berries downtown these are wonderful places and i look at what they put on the plate for the same that what that what um uh these steakhouse puts on the plate and i can't justify it i just can't i mean i i don't know what you had but my steak was was supermarket quality beef okay and and uh and the prices, and I am immune to sticker shock. Okay, I'm, I'm. First of all, I'm doing this a long time. I travel all over the world. I mean, you, it takes a lot. But when I'm paying ninety five dollars for a steak that looks like it came from the meat counter at at Smith's Food King, okay, I'm just like, no. <laughs> I did like the crab cake though, Jeff. I did like. I thought the crab cake was excellent. That was one of my. It was forty two dollars. But it was excellent. No, no, it was $27, $27. It was very good. I I just thought it was very funny how it just felt like we had such different experiences between the two of us. I just, it it was, for me, it just felt like an old school steakhouse. And and I didn't think the prices, when I compared it to some of the other places, I I didn't think the prices were all that terrible. But that, that maybe that's just me. I don't know. (laughs) Next time you come to Vegas. I'm taking you to cut, okay? Okay. Or Scotch 80 Prime, okay? okay. On me, on me, okay? You, you, you bring bring the spouse, uh, we're there, okay? Hey, hey I'm ex- I'm absolutely accepting that deal, no question. <laughs> <laughs> um, if you have a bad experience somewhere, are you going to give them a second chance or no? Are you done? Uh, I, well, again, uh, when I was reviewing restaurants, more seriously than than today. I mean, again, we're I guess we're going to get this later because the whole social media uh, thing has eclipsed a lot of what food writing was, you know, ten years ago, twenty years ago plus. Uh, 
But yeah, when I was like doing weekly reviews for uh, uh, NPR and uh, writing for magazines all the time, and a, 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 a big player came on the scene, a good player, and I, I thought it was a little bit iffy, I'd go back again before I would write out something and say, I'm sorry, but this just isn't worth it, or, you know, the, the food is subpar, or, or, you know, what were they thinking, you know, however I wanted to approach the negative review. Uh, but so a lot of times you don't, I mean, when, when they're, when when it's when it's, when, when it's a um a real uh well financed place like a Guy Fieri place, I mean that 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 is that is a complete in place template. The minute it it they open they unlock the door for the first customer, so it's not going to get better or worse. They have vetted these things to the nth degree, so it's not a, a mom and pop or smaller caliber restaurant that's still finding its feet, its, its sea legs. Um, yeah, you might give them a second chance, but, but a big hitter place where, you know, there is lots of money behind it. No, I mean, what, you know, if the fries are crappy, the fries are crappy. You know what I mean? If a, if a club sandwich is using, you know, that kind of, uh, you know, gelatinous cheap ham on it or something like that, you know, right away, that's not going to change. Mm-hmm. You know, why go back again and submit yourself to that humiliation, you know? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I think everywhere is is entitled to have a bad day, and and I mean, we've all had oh, yeah. bad days, and and I've eaten at restaurants where it's consistent, 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 and then yeah, you have that one negative experience, and you're like, eh, it's, it's just an off day. But as you say, with a place like a Guy Fieri place or a Gordon Ramsay place, yeah. those places are are set, and as right. you say, it should be good from the start, or it's going to be bad from the start. It's not going to go. It's not going to flip flop around. Yeah, I mean, there's a, a new restaurant just opened downtown called 1228 Main, and and it's uh, it's a Wolfgang Puck finance restaurant, but it's a very they tell you straight out of the shoot. I'm partly uh, because they're pros, but, but they're saying you know, they, and I, I've been in multiple times, and, and some other writers have been in. They're saying, look at our, this this we're not even having a grand opening yet. They've been open for a month now. They say our grand opening is going to be in September sometime. We're just spending the summer testing recipes, trying out ideas. And, you know, we, yeah, you've got you've got 13 waiters on the floor right now. Sooner or later, it'll be five, you know what I mean, or five or six. But so they'll tell you that up front. And that, to me, is the way to be honest with them. And then you do give them a better, uh, a second chance, especially when they're new. Mm-hmm. Uh, established, like I, I mentioned earlier, I went to a place called Lago in the Bellagio, one of my worst meals in the last 10 years. And it's just, it's just this completely by-the-numbers uh, uninspired, just hackneyed Italian restaurant that that is packed all the time with all the Bellagio tourists. Okay, and the pizzas were like just—I mean, you get better pizzas than, out of the frozen food case. I mean, that's how bad. And they have a big pizza oven there. It was just terrible. I mean, I mean, just you know, the, the fish was overcooked. They 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 gave you risotto that was gummy. I mean, you know, they, I mean, this, this is an expensive Italian restaurant in the Bellagio Hotel in Las Vegas. And I mean, screw that. I ain't going back. You know what yeah. I mean? You, yeah. you don't know how to do it right. You're done. You know, and I'll tell everybody, anybody will listen. Lago is a, is a ripoff. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'll take that one off my list. <laughs> okay. No, don't bother. 
Um, we've talked a little bit about the rise of social media and, and how, I mean, social media has grown to, and it seems like anybody basically with a, a camera phone and a, a TikTok account or a YouTube channel can call themselves a, a food critic. Has this made your job as a critic harder or, or easier? I mean, you're established enough that people trust you, but are you able to kind of cut through the clutter? Well, I, I think within, within my small little world of Las Vegas, I am. Yes. Mm -hmm. I mean, I've been doing it here for 30, close to 30 years now. Uh, But I mean, I don't have the reach that these, uh, as I like, and uh, some of these influencers are my friends and some of them are pretty good. I don't, I, you know, I don't have, uh, you know, 400,000, you know, followers on, on Instagram or, or 50, you know, I I like to say I might have 10,000 followers here, but, but 5,000, 5,000 of them really go out to eat, spend real money. Okay. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the people I'm, I'm talking to are, are the me's and the you's who are come here and are looking for better experiences and are willing to throw down for it. Uh, yeah. So I guess, you know, has it changed the game? Yeah. It's, it's made real restaurant writing an endangered species that I think we're, we're not coming back from. I mean, I'm a, I like to say I'm a dinosaur and I know it. I mean, I really am. I mean, I, uh, I'm the last of my kind. Nobody's going to come up behind me who has the time and the obsession to do what I have done since 1994. Mm-hmm. I, I, the, the, I mean, now it's it's all just this quick little and, and the marketers, the advertisers on TikTok and YouTube are trying to make money off it. I don't think they're going to do that very well. I, you know, I, I mean, the, maybe if maybe like like if that with anything like musicians or whatever and actors, maybe one or two gets big, the rest of them all fall by the wayside, you know, and declare bankruptcy or or go back to their day jobs or something like that. But yeah, it's changed the game remarkably to the point where I'm me in Las Vegas, but but as as the me's uh, retire, die out, whatever, it's just going to be just a bunch of 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 a, a, a bunch of cacophony, you know, of 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 video video and, and, and superficial, uh, you know, opinion. And, and that's what's going to rule. I, I don't see anybody coming up, you know, maybe, maybe, maybe sometime, but, you know, it's just, you know, you got to be obsessive in the right way. And I don't see any of the influencers being obsessive, except let me digression. They're all obsessive about doing it, but they're doing it as a way to advertise themselves. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, that 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 to me is the biggest difference. One of multiple differences. When I did it, I'm there. I want to be a consumer advocate. Let's go back to that. I want to do it because I love food. Because I want to tell people about the greatest food. I'm a conduit for trying to get. Yes, I'm full of opinions. I'm bombastic. I, I can be grumpy and egotistical like anybody. Uh, but my underlying philosophy is I want to tell you where to get the good stuff. Mm-hmm. The whole the whole the whole TikTok brain Instagram thing is look at me, look at me, look at me. I'm they're using food as a conduit to sell themselves, and and that that's the 21st century, which is way different than what I was doing back in the 90s and the early aughts. I want to talk about the Vegas food scene. So, I mean, you called it when you first moved to Vegas. It, it, I love this the town that taste forgot. And so, I mean, when you started covering the scene back in 1991, as we said earlier, it was not what it, what it is now, not even remotely close. Oh, no, it was back then the philosophy of every hotel, every hotel had the same four or five restaurants. They all had a coffee shop. 
they had a cheap buffet, and it was cheap. They were not, none of these high flute like went on core buffets, Bellagio, where it's you know hundred dollars a person for all you can eat. This was these were you know nine ninety five, fifteen ninety five special. Uh, they would have an Italian restaurant uh, of some ilk, and then they but they and then they would have a continental restaurant or a you know. I would say, from what continent, we don't know. <laughs> you know or, 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 or a gourmet room, which was always where, you know, they had the tuxedo guys and, uh, you know, flaming something table size and steak Diane and, and Caesar salads. And, and, my, and, I, and back in the 80s and 90s, I ate in these places. And most of them were not, not that good, but they were, they, were, they were Vegas good. But that was the philosophy that every hotel had to capture its customers keep them there to gamble and eat. And that was it. Um, and the re- the first restaurant that came to town and kind of broke the mold was when Ruth's Chris showed up in 1989. And I interviewed the, uh, the, uh, the fellow who brought it here, a guy named Marcel Taylor, who was a dealer at Caesar's Palace. And he met Ruth Fertel, who was the Louisiana gal, who at that point had like four or five Ruth's Chris in the Southeast. And, and he said, why don't you bring one to, to Vegas? And her response to him was, my board of directors will never go for it because nobody eats outside of the casinos in Las Vegas. Every casino has their own customers. They don't, nobody goes, nobody walks from the frontier to the desert inn or the desert inn, you know, down to Caesar's Palace to eat. They just all keep their customers in house. Well, he, they, he talked her into doing it. They opened up Paradise Road. In, 19, in late 1989, and within six months, it was the leading Ruth's Chris moneymaker. And within a year, Morton's and Palm showed up, and within about 18 months, the Las Vegas uh, out, outposts of those chain steakhouses were making more than all the other, all, every other one they had in, 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 their, in their galaxy of, of uh, franchises. Uh, and that's what inspired Wolfgang Puck and Emeril Lagasse to come here. Uh-huh. So, but but they had to break the mold, and the mold wasn't broken with celebrity chefs. That was that was about five years later that started. Back then, it was you had to see if people were willing to leave the hotels to eat somewhere, uh-huh. and and these chain steakhouses were the ones that did it. Amazing, but true. Yeah. So was that then? Do you think that was what caused that shift in that the casinos kind of looked and went? Oh shit! People are leaving to go eat. Yeah. We need to do right. something to 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 keep them here. So let's invite Wolfgang Puck and Emeril Lagasse and these guys to exactly. come in and open their places in our places. Yeah, that's exactly what happened. And they, they said, "Oh yeah," but when people were going off script to the, I mean, Morton was in a mall, Palms was in a mall, uh, Ruth Chris was was uh, was about a block off the strip, and they looked around and and the people that noticed was. Uh, it became nationally known in the early 90s that the amount of wine and vodka and beer and steaks and salads that these chain steakhouses were moving at, through Vegas was, was astronomical. And then, you know, like any businesses, the, the, the rumors and the facts, you know, suddenly become uh, well known. And when that happened, uh, yeah, they realized there was gold in the them to our hills. You know what I mean? We got to do something to up our game. And the guy who really did, you know, break them all was Wolfgang Puck. I mean, I like to talk about the chain steakhouses because that's just historical fact. But Puck was the guy who opened Spago. And uh, and the the funny part, within a year, 
the Spago was making more money uh, in a week. The Spago Vegas was making more cash in a week than the Spago Los Angeles was making in a month. Okay? Wow. And that's, and that's really got everybody's attention. Okay? Mm-hmm. And Wolf, Wolfgang Puck still talks about it. He said it was just, and when people saw that, that's when that led to MGM upping its game with uh, Emeril Lagasse and Charlie Trotter and Mark Miller. And then the, the big earthquake was when the, 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 the Bellagio opened in October 1998 and October 15th, 1998. And that's when you had Le Cirque and Michael Mina came to town and, and uh, Jean-Georges von Gerichten opened Prime and uh, Aqua, uh, Le Cirque, uh, Picasso with Julian Serrano, who at the time, people forget this, he was the number one chef with the number one restaurant in San Francisco. And the Bellagio enticed him to come down to Las Vegas in 1997, opened in 1998, with a very high-toned Picasso French restaurant with actual Picassos, about a dozen of them hanging around the around the place. And this got everybody's attention. Suddenly, by night, I still have the Wine Spectator from, I think, the summer of 1999, where they're talking about Las Vegas is the new gastronomic destination in the world. And that was the big, big news right then. I assume that there were naysayers, though, that looked at this and went, no, this is never going to work in Las Vegas. I mean, Vegas has always been the city of buffets and coffee shops. And and like you say, the the standard Italian restaurants, this thing is going to this is going to this is a fad. This is going to pass. And here we are 25, 30 years later. And definitely not. The city is just blown up as a food destination. Oh, well, and another anecdote. Um. And, you know, you get old, you start talking about the old times. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm I'm about two years into my food writing gig. So it's about 1996, 1997. I go up to Napa Valley and I go to a food writers at that was Greystone, which is the CIA Culinary Institute of America has a campus up there. And they were doing a convo convocation of national food writers. And um, and you could anybody could sign up for it. But I so I, I go up there. And I spent a week in Napa Valley hobnobbing with the restaurant critics from uh, back then. It was uh, it was Richmond uh, from the uh, Washington Post, Ruth Reichel from the New York Times, Los Angeles Times, Chicago Tribune, uh, magazine writers like John Mariani and Alan Richmond for GQ and and and, and uh, Esquire. So all the big shots were there, and and plus you know maybe a few dozen other people like me who wanted to who were in the game, but we weren't. You know, we we weren't at the pinnacle. We were just watching, seeing what the Olympic, the gods on Olympus were doing. <laughs> so I remember going with some of them to um, Schaefer Winery, so very well known, very good Napa Valley winery. And we sat there and uh, interviewed Doug Schaefer, and he breaks out some of his best bottles for everybody. And I and I say to him, "Well, you know, this is. Uh, are, are you doing any any? Are you, you distribute your wines down in?" Vegas, because Vegas is really about to take off here, you know. And I was there, and I remember there was somebody from Lori Ochoa from the Los Angeles Times and a couple other people. And they went, and he looked at me and he went, oh, I'm never going to sell a lot of wine in Vegas. Who'd want to sell a lot of wine in Vegas? Nobody there is going to appreciate my wine. And and the, the little chorus of the two or three other food writers there, big city food writers, went, yeah, I mean, this is great stuff. We're drinking some of the best Hillside Select Schaefer wines in the world. And who's, why would anybody buy these in Vegas? You know, 10 years later, 
Doug Schaefer comes to town and I have I have dinner with him at Craft Steak at the MGM. And I and I remind him and he goes, Did I really say that? And I went, Yeah, you did, Doug. And he goes, Yeah, that's the way we were thinking back in 1997. That's what we were thinking. <laughs> so there you go. That, that, so yeah, there were naysayers. Yeah. Nobody could believe it. Ten years later, they were all believing. Coming up, John gives us some of his picks for most overrated and underrated restaurants in Vegas. We discuss some of the current trends in Las Vegas dining, and John shares his thoughts on what lies ahead for the Vegas food scene. That's next on Jeff Does Vegas. What do you think is laying in the future of the Vegas restaurant and food scene? I mean, are we... Are we getting away from the celebrity chef trend? Is this a thing that's dying or is it is it just continuing to grow? No, short answer, yes. Yes, the Vegas is, the Las Vegas Strip is out of ideas. They haven't had an original restaurant idea in Las, on, on the Strip in 10 years. Mm-hmm. That's why they keep opening, you know, Martha Stewart, 80-year-old Martha Stewart is a big deal. Martin Yan, who's older than, you know, he's older than Kim Chi. You know, he's, 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 he's I, he opens a pathetic restaurant in the in the in the Bally's Hotel. Uh, Martha Stewart, Guy Fieri just opened his his seventh sports bar. I mean, this is what they're doing. The the, the inspirational chef driven restaurants of 1998 and 2005, the French Revolution that brought Robichon and Guy Savoy and Pierre Gagnier and Daniel Boulud here. They're all gone. They, they, now it's just run by bean counters and accountants. Mm-hmm. No, we, we we've got a good reputation for food. Let's just open another Guy Fieri sports bar. Yeah, <laughs> or, excuse me, Fieri. <laughs> Bad Guy Fieri. Another another place to get trash can nachos, right? Like <laughs> exactly, exactly. And, and donkey sauce. You know, yeah. we need more donkey sauce. Where is the most growth happening right now? Is it is it off the strip? Is that the place to be right now? Yeah, if you um, uh, read my blog, another shameless plug, eatinglv.com. Um, and my social media feeds and everything. I've been a huge proponent of what's going on in the last five years in the neighborhoods. I mean, Chinatown has blown up. Uh, downtown is downtown and Chinatown to me are the two happening places right now. That's where the most interesting work's being done. Uh, the most chef-driven restaurants, small, smaller caliber places. I mean, you know, a strip, you know, an 80 street restaurant in, in on the strip is considered dinky, you know, but it, it's a huge restaurant off the strip. Uh, but our Japanese food scene has is just expanded tremendously. I mean, I I tell anybody who likes good sushi, if you eat good sushi on the strip, you're a fool. OK, we have uh, these tiny, tiny little restaurants and Kabuto, which, you know, seats like 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 14 people, you know, some super expensive ones like Sangha and Kame, which is like. $400 a person. They're trying to mimic the, you know, those really super high end uh, you know, Japanese restaurants in, in LA and, and Japan. Uh, but that that's, uh, forget them. I mean, there's great izakaya food. Uh, there's great noodle parlors. There's great Vietnamese food. Korean food is all over Chinatown now. So that's where I think the most interesting food is happening these days. And downtown is happening too, as well. Yeah. Is it the Asian cuisine that's really blowing up right now in Vegas? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But I, I, I think we're destined to become, you know, a, an a, another Macau. <laughs> you know, another, oh, Macau is supposed to be like Asian Vegas. We're gonna the Asian customer is is in the twenty first century what the baby boomers were in the nineteen nineties and early two thousands. Uh-huh. 
and and what what in my dad what what the post World War II veterans were in the fifties and sixties. I mean that it's now Asian oriented. Resorts World opened a couple of years ago, and they have this very very interesting food hall. You know they don't call them food courts anymore. We'll get to that in a second. And it's it's basically like fifteen different stalls of various uh, various Asian cuisines. I mean, like, uh, you know, Malaysian uh, cuisine, uh, uh, Filipino lechon, you know, uh, roasted pigs, uh, uh, some um, Indian, uh, you know, Indian, uh, what do they call, roti, you know, roti, folded roti uh, with the long, you know, uh, uh, breads and um, uh, Indian food, one of those things. I'm not that not that I love it, but I don't know that much about it. You know? Yeah. <laughs> once, I over, once I get to India, I might kind of go, hey, it's great. <laughs> I love Tandoori chicken, <laughs> but, but I don't know it like I should. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, so I think the Asian Asia is where it's happening. Downtown is a little more neighborhood focused, you know, with uh, we have getting better bakeries, really a big coffee scene downtown, great pizzas, uh, um, a tiny personal restaurants run like uh, wine bars. Uh, a great beer bars downtown. So I, li- I like that for my non-Asian cuisine and Spring Mountain Road slash Chinatown for, I think, some of the best Asian food you'll get in America. One other trend that you briefly mentioned talking about Resorts World was the the food hall trend. And this is another thing that seems to be blowing up in Vegas. It seems every hotel, both on and off the Strip, is trying to do this whole food hall thing. This This is a direction they seem to be going in. Yeah, yeah. Well, as I, I I tweeted out last night, um, this is not your father's uh, hot dog on a stick anymore. Okay, <laughs> not Sabaro pizza and 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 orange Julius. Yeah, okay. uh, these are and, and they're expensive. Like I, I mentioned, the the food hall at Resorts World, which is all is ninety percent Asian and some with really interesting stuff. Um, and yeah, and they're they're slowly phasing out buffets we can get to that in a minute and food halls are capturing people's imagination because it's more exotic food and it's not a one-size-fits-all buffet okay Mm -hmm. and so people can go there you know if you want your soup dumplings here if you want your if you want your certain kind of you know malaysian fried rice you can go there and uh, um i i see that as as a looming trend uh and it also alleviates this gets a little deep in the weeds but Hotels in Vegas have never liked running the buffets. They're not good at it. I mean, a buffet is a hugely uh, expensive, employee-heavy uh, operation. And the food halls allow them to basically get uh, take a vanilla shell and rent it out piecemeal, much like a food court would do in a mall in the 1980s and 90s, to individual operators who are responsible for cooking there, you know, two or three or four or five things, and that's it. Mm-hmm. So it becomes more of a, a, a landlord-tenant relationship rather than we've got to mount this, you know, this this gigantic Waterloo battle of, of, of food, you know, for hundreds of people all day long with, with, with hundreds of employees to make everything from shrimp to, uh, to mugu guy pan to, you know, to – uh, to tacos for, you know, 4,000 people a day, mm-hmm. you know? So uh, the hotels want to do this because it, it alleviates them being in the food game. And I don't think they really want to do it. 
the, the Vegas hotels, they want to take your money, gambling, food, and shopping. Food is, is a hassle for them. It's interesting talking about buffets because I think, I mean, buffets went away, obviously, during COVID and that closure under the guise of, you know, it's unsanitary and unhygienic. I mean, let's face it, buffets were always unsanitary and unhygienic. Uh, <laughs> walking around, touching things that a bunch of other people have I touched. It. Ex- oh, okay. Exactly. Yeah, here, here, here you go. <laughs> the, the invent of the, the, the sneeze guard was not yeah. a, a, an early invention at the buffets, but yeah, yeah. They, they, they sort of used COVID as the excuse to go, to get away from the buffets. Do you think it was going in that direction anyways? I mean, they've always been a loss leader for the the hotels. It was just sort of, here's a way for us to not spend all this money on buffets. Yeah. And, and, and yeah, it's a loss leader. Like I said, they're hugely expensive and difficult to, to operate. And uh, there used to be 23 of them on, on the strip. Now there's six. Mm-hmm. Okay. And the only, and of the six, I think all of them are high end now. I mean, the, like Bellagio and Wynn and, um, Cosmopolitan, I think, still has one. I, I think the one down M Casino. I, I can't name them all. I'm not a buffet guy, but yeah, there's only six left. And uh, yes, I don't. I, I think they they are phasing them out. The only break I'll give casino uh, buffets. And my wife, who's worked in advertising her whole life, she's and and she used to go to Asia quite a lot. She said the one good thing about buffets, which you have to forgive them for, is it makes it easy for non-English speaking uh, tourists mm-hmm. to eat. Okay. I mean, and, and as a person who's traveled, I know you do travel, Jeff. I mean, you know, it's, it's, there's a certain intimidation to going to a foreign country where you don't speak the language and eat and walking into a place. It's one thing to buy something in a drugstore where the interaction is minimal. Another thing to, you know, look at a menu, sit down, not be aware of the customs involved, you know, how you do this, what they say, what you say. And that's intimidating. And, and we all have to eat at least once or twice a day. And and buffets alleviate that that stress on a on a, on a foreign customer. So I um I I have a softer spot in my heart for them for that reason. But I think they're on their way out. And they're not very uh they're not cheap anymore. No, they're not leaders. They're there. I mean, I mean, the ones that are surviving are will run you about a hundred dollars a person now. Mm-hmm. And you know, you can go to Chinatown and for a hundred bucks, you can feed a family of six. <laughs> okay. Really tasty food. Okay. And, and that's the argument that I've had with a few people on, on social media about buffets is they look at a place like say Bacchanal buffet and in, in Caesars, that's now $85 a person. When I went to, three years ago or four years ago, I think it was $50 a person at that point. And they always say, Oh, is it worth it? And I look and go, well, for me personally, I would rather spend $85 on a decent sit down meal somewhere where the food isn't mass prepared and sat for X amount of time where I'm surrounded by a bunch of people in a loud, noisy environment. But I see at the same time, I see the other side of it where people look at it and go that $85. All I want to do is go in there and stuff my face with crabs legs. And and yeah, that's, yeah. that's what the first thing everybody goes for at the buffet. Oh, oh the shrimp, the lobster, and the crab legs. How much yeah. can they eat? And, and, well, and I don't want to get too political here, but that's also kind of indecent. Okay. And Americans have eaten that way for too long. And, and this idea and, and, I, I read some. I read a great book called Drink. It was written by a fellow named Andrew Barr, uh, English fellow about the his, the social history of America. 
uh, it was, it, I think it came out back in there 20 years ago. He talks about, he goes back and minds all these old food writers and, and reporters from the 19th century, from the 1830s and 40s, who came over here from England and Germany and, and Vienna and are astounded by the volume of food that Americans would cram in their mouths. And he has these quotes, you know, from newspaper articles, you know, from 1841. Okay, so it's in the American character to grotesquely stuff your face at a buffet. And it goes back literally hundreds of years. But, you know, we need to learn to eat more like the Asians, like the Europeans. You know, we nibble, you know, we we, we quality over quantity. I don't know if it's ever going to happen because the American psyche seems to be so much in the other direction. I've always said that sign on the wall that says all you can eat is not meant as a challenge. It's, it's, it's a suggestion, not a challenge. Absolutely. And I mean, good God. I mean, you know, I, you know, yes, I'm 25 pounds overweight, maybe 20. Okay. On my head, I think I hear my wife saying 30. (laughs) Um, But uh, yeah, we're not doing ourselves any favor. We are, obese as a country and 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 this this mentality has done us no favors it really hasn't and so buffets if they leave you know it's fine with me because we ought to just sit down eat one two two nice meals a day like the europeans do enjoy the food in smaller portions and live a healthier life yeah that's my philosophy amen to that Now let's um, go. Let's go take down a. Let's go take down a, a tomahawk ribeye, Jeff. Okay, I'm <laughs> I'm all about that. <laughs> By the same token, when we talk yeah. about gluttony, yes, I will stuff my face with a tomahawk ribeye. That I will yeah. accept as a personal challenge. <laughs> <laughs> I want to get a few recommendations and reviews from you, of course, because I mean, you're a food critic. You do nothing but talk about food, so. Well, I have you on my podcast. I need to get some some suggestions from you. So uh, let's start with um, your best ever Las Vegas dining experience. I'll go to one in um, 2010. There used to be a food event here called Vegas Uncorked. It was here from, well, it was here for like 10 years, but the first uh, three or four years it came down. It was it was just magical. It was a Vegas, the Vegas Convention Center uh, formed an alliance with Bon Appetit magazine. This was the very end of the Dead Tree food magazine days. OK, I mean, this was like because, you know, by, by about 2011 and 12, uh, I, I chart this stuff carefully. By by 2012, and 13 magazines were all dropping like flies all over America. But the, the last gasp of the food magazine was about 2005 to 2010. And in uh, 2010 uh, was a third year of, of Vegas Uncorked. And I had the editors, I got to sort of semi-hosting might be a little, a little bit overstating it. But let's say I was the, the, the main character at, a, at the Guy Savoie restaurant who came here from Paris, France, one of the great restaurants in Paris, one of the great ones in Vegas, extremely expensive. But I had uh, the editors of Bon Appetit magazine, the Los Angeles Times, uh, Esquire food magazine, uh, uh, GQ, uh, the Chicago Tribune, uh, the the San Francisco Chronicle. I had them all at one table and Guy Savoie 
came to town just to serve us. So we had a table of about 10 people. And, uh, and I, and he, he basically made us, you know, a five pound turbo and he made, uh, leave a la Royale, which is jug hair, which is rabbit cooked in its own blood with wine sauce. Uh, he made these, all these classical, uh, pumpkin soup, you know, in a, in a, in a, in a giant pumpkin with, with truffles, with white truffles. I mean, it was just, uh, ethereally good. And, uh, it was like you, you had the, one of the greatest French chefs in the world coming to Las Vegas at his Las Vegas outpost and saying, how can I blow the socks off like, like a table of 10 of the biggest food writers in America? Uh-huh. And of course, you know, we didn't pay for any of this. And then the sommelier with the wines and blah, blah, blah. So I, that's a tough, that's a tough one to top right, right there in 2010. So, but then I'll go smaller more, a couple other things. Uh, when Raku opened, which was our, is a, our, the first Izakaya to open, not the first, but the best Izakaya opened in 2008. It's since become one of our most famous, uh, Japanese restaurants on Spring Mountain Road. I remember going there with a bunch of local chefs, including Rick Moonen, Paul Bartolotta, and a couple of other guys at like midnight. And they'd, they'd only been open a month or so, too. And a couple of the chefs had been there already and they said, this is Japanese food like Vegas has never seen before, you know, the, with, with the charcoal grilling and all and everything. And I mean, I was just, I had yet, I had ne- I, in 2008, I had yet to go to Japan for the first time. Uh, and I remember just with different sakes for every course and just eating literally like 20 or 25 different things, you know, a house made tofu. Uh, they made their own soy sauce. They made all their own pepper blends. They, they, they made their own, uh, their little ponzu vinegar sauce. Everything was made in house. It was, it was Japanese food that I was an eye opener and I knew it was sort of a cataclysm for Vegas because we had never seen something like this before. Mm-hmm. And I knew it was a, this, I was on sitting on the cusp of Chinatown going from, and it had already been, Chinatown had been around for over 10 years. But I said, this is a, this is an earthquake shaking right here. And the gastronomic world is going to feel the shudder because this is some, and it was, it was a 50 seat restaurant. And sure enough, Raku has taken off since now. They have a Los Angeles outpost and it's still probably one of our most famous Japanese restaurants. And it, it, it is fabulous. It's, it, and that's another place I'll take you if you come to town. Okay. Because it's just, it's, it's that, uh, it's that Japanese charcoal cooking, which is just, so beautiful and and um, uh, and so delicate, and it just gives you a whole different perspective on Japanese food. And and so by contrast, then these are always the fun ones. Yeah. Worst ever Vegas dining experience. Hugo's Cellar. Really? Yeah, Hugo's Cellar. Uh, uh, Jeff, yeah, I'm sorry. You just, I, I, I Hugo's Cellar is is so expensive and so. I mean, they literally are spinning the salad bowl and they, 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 this has been a famous place for since 1980, I think, or 84. Yeah. And, uh, they, they do this thing where they spin the salad bowl and ice and everything. And they literally are pouring like bottle dressing on the fucking salad. I'm sorry. Excuse my friends. Uh, but yeah, it's just no, no. It's, it's, it's one of these old union places. Uh, all union waiters, they've just been, Going through the motions like this, you know, for, for decades. No one's going to ever fire them, you know, just so metronomic, stratospheric prices and metronomic service. 
I mean, I just, I, I couldn't believe it in a, in an absolute toilet of a hotel. So, I mean, it just didn't make any sense to me. I'd say that's my worst Vegas meal of the last 10 years. That's, that's shocking because Hugo Cellar is always one of those places that comes up when people ask about a steakhouse or a good place to go or a nice place to go out and eat. That's always one of those ones that comes up in, in the list. I've never been there myself and I'll definitely not go now, but it's one of those ones that always seems to come up. So then I, I asked as well, I wanted, I sent this ahead of, uh, ahead of time to you because I wanted to, I, I knew these are the kinds of things that take a little bit of time to prep a couple of top three lists that I wanted to go over. Um, let's start with the top three most underrated spots in Las Vegas. Okay. Underrated spots in Las Vegas. I'm going to go with my, my number one underrated place is a place called Mateo's Italian Ristorante in the Venetian Hotel. Absolutely knock your socks off pasta. Just, just crazy good. And uh, it's in the Venetian Palazzo, which has like 40 restaurants in it. So it, the competition is keen. I mean, by contrast, uh, the Bellagio has 12 restaurants in it, right? Right. They're about the same size. And Venetian Palazzo has, <laughs> Venetian Palazzo has 40 restaurants in it. And, and I think nine of them are Italian. <laughs> Okay, yeah. but Mateo's is absolutely just a phenomenal restaurant to go to. So, uh, and uh, it, it's an offshoot of an LA uh, place. And I just, every time I've been there, I just kind of, I take my glasses off and go, good God, why isn't, why is there a line out the door for this food? I mean, it does okay. It's been here, it's open pre COVID and it, it, it does fine, but it's, uh, it's, it's just fantastic. So, so that, that's one. Um, I'll, I'll give you uh, an underrated place that I think the, the, that's all my Chinese food aficionados love to go to. It's off the strips on South Rainbow. We have a second Chinatown on South Rainbow. I call it Chinatown Junior. And a lot of Chinese uh, noodle parlors, uh, izakaya, uh, uh, Korean steakhouses have kind of migrated down there. And it's a place called Rainbow Kitchen. And it's uh, very authentic and if you go there any day of the week, you notice that uh, it's where all the, the 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 fellow travelers, the real Chinese food, uh, it's all, you know, you're the only gringo guy in there. And you can tell these are, and they're well-heeled families who, you know, this is where they get their real Chinese food, okay, at mm -hmm. Rainbow Kitchen on South Rainbow. And uh, so it's it's not for the sweet and sour pork crap, okay, I, I, I just, just, just the... Keep that, you know, if if Mugu Guy Pan is your jam, don't go there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and, you know, then you said underrated places. You know, it's hard to underrate places on the strip because they're all backed by such money. And then mm -hmm. they, they they get they get some. And so, I mean, I'm just going to go. I mean, you go through places like an MGM, Bellagio places, Mandalay Bay's Moribund. They're, they're not doing anything. Um, I, I think a, a place that has consistently knocked me over, though, uh, called Viva Viva by Ray Garcia in the New Resorts World, mm -hmm. and it's uh, it's uh, Ray Garcia is a Mexican superstar down in Los Angeles, and uh, he's opened here, and it seems to just fly under the radar. I've eaten there three times and gone again. Why isn't there a line out the door for this? I mean, it's like next level, you know, Conchinita Pabil tacos fish tacos all the salsas are made in house uh great beer list great tequila list 
I mean, it's in a big ho- Vegas hotel, and it's hard to fly under the radar there and be underrated. But it, 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 Viva by Ray Garcia in the resorts world is 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 something to see if you're a lover of Mexican food. And Vegas, Vegas, like a town, we have scores of really, really lousy um, uh, Italian and Mexican in this town. Mm-hmm. One other Italian place I'll give you that I I love off the strip is called. It's not. It's on the strip. It's on South Las Vegas Boulevard near the airport called Milano Cafe, run by two gals. Uh, very much a kind of a uh, all, all checks a lot of the boxes in Italian food. It's not one specific kind of Italian food, but these gals are passionate. They make their own bread. Milano, you know, on South Las Vegas Boulevard is really good. Those are my underrated restaurants. And so on the flip side, overrated. These are always fun because, of course, there's so many places that are just giant tourist traps and are just yeah. <laughs> terrible, but somehow get all this attention. Well, let's start with. Any restaurant that has Gordon Ramsay's name attached to it, okay? <laughs> I could just stop right there, okay? <laughs> I mean, Gordo is uh, – I've met the guy multiple times. I love the guy, okay? He's like Guy Fieri. I mean, I like – these guys are charming fellows when you meet them one-on-one. They are. They, they'll they sit down. They're the guys – you crack a beer with these fellows and talk to them, you know, off the record, and they are – funny, smart guys, you know, there are, there are a lot, but they're just slapping their names on the door. Okay. I mean, so uh, anything with Guy Fieri's name on it or Gordon Ramsay's name on it is just, uh, it's a tourist trap. I mean, I hate to keep using that term, but, but I, and they're all just, they're not Guy Fieri restaurants. They're not Gordon Ramsay restaurants. They're hotel restaurants. They're run by the hotels. All the employees are hotel employees. The hotel is just, they're just brand whores. Okay. They've just, they've just done a licensing deal to slap their name on the door and pick up a trick four times a year. And that's all. And they show up when it's time for, for press events and picture taking, but that's it. They have nothing to do with the cooking. I would say that I'd rather go to a Guy Fieri sports bar than a Gordon Ramsay pub because I think Gordon Ramsay's pubs are, he's got a couple places that are just god awful. Uh, his steakhouse here isn't so bad, but it's, it's not top tier, but it's, uh, but I, so I'd say avoid celebrity chef restaurants in general and Gordon Ramsay restaurants in particular. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so what did you say overrated? I think I have one more overrated. Oh yeah. Eiffel tower restaurant. The Eiffel tower restaurant is a, is just, it's nothing but, but young people getting engaged. <laughs> okay. <laughs> it's just, Dumbass millennials and Gen Xers and Gen Zers getting engaged and girls swooning over a I've got a ring finally look at me it's the whole thing it's and and maybe with the occasional bachelorette party thrown in for good measure so it's just I mean it's it, and it's really popular but it's not even good French food it, it and it's by the numbers they, I think they do eight or nine hundred covers a day. Wow. Yeah, I mean, they're, they are so busy. It's, it's just a food factory, a mill. So Eiffel Tower restaurant, I would say overrated, grotesquely. Okay. If you want good French food, you got to pay for it. Mm-hmm. That's where you go to Savoie, Joel Robichon, uh, things like that. Let's talk hidden gems. I mean, we, we've hit on a ton already through the course of our conversation, and you've mentioned a lot of places already. But uh, are there any other hidden gems that you like to recommend to people that are coming to town? All right, hidden gems. And I've got a ton of them. Okay, uh, but I'm going to go through a couple. Downtown Publicus, Public Us, 
uh, is is on a forlorn strip of East Fremont Street, about a mile from the Fremont Street experience. Uh, it's, it's that area of town they keep trying to bring back into something interesting, but it's still a wasteland. It's really just not uh, lots of bumps. But in the middle of this bleak, bleak area, there's this little sign that says Publicus on a corner lot, and it's uh, all in-house baked goods, really strong coffee program, just breakfast and lunch, uh, fantastic croissant, wonderful vegan options if you like that. If you want to stuff your face with with baked goods, it's great. They do tea, uh, exotic teas. My coffee hound friends, I I like good coffee, but I'm not I, I'm not obsessive about it. They say it's got a very very strong coffee program, and uh, and it's survived now for like eight years in in the worst location in town. So public us got to go there. Um, Edo, E-D-O, last name of Oscar Amador, Edo. He's just nominated for a James Beard Award, didn't get it. But it's a little tiny Spanish hole in the wall right off Spring Mountain Road at Jones with probably the best Spanish food you're going to get anywhere that doesn't have Jose Andres' name attached to it. Really good, E-D-O. Um, and then uh, Japanero, Japanero, J-A-P-A-N-E-I-R-O, is this little Asian fusion steakhouse again south and a little south and west of the strip that it does just some incredible food really interesting uh kevin chong is the chef there and i don't go there enough because it's way out of my not anywhere near where i usually drive to but but every time you go blown away some of the best beef you're going to find off the strip too and some really interesting asian fusion stuff so kevin so japanero's it and um and then I'm at a, a two sushi places that people always ask me about. And this gets confusing. Hiro Yoshi, which is on West Charleston, and Sushi Hero, which is way out in Anderson, have two of the best sushi restaurants in town. It's Hidden Gems, Hiro Yoshi, one word, Sushi Hero, two words, uh, opposite ends of town. But all my sushi uh, hounds that I know that really love sushi, they go to these places. And I say, if you're eating sushi on the strip, you're doing it wrong. Yeah. Because these places are really, really good. And they're not, they're not cheap, but they're, they're not, we have these super luxurious high end Japanese places I mentioned before. Uh, they're not that. I mean, you, you'll, you'll spend good money there, but you can get out of there for like a hundred bucks a person, mm-hmm. you know, not $500 a person. Right. Really good fish. They do a lot of turnover, and the sushi chefs are 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 bilingual, but very Japanese, and they can they they can they can guide you through a fantastic uh, sushi meal at these two places. So those those are. You asked for three. I think I gave you five. <laughs> <laughs> I'm all about over delivering. I'm all good with yeah, that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and, and yeah. So uh, as I say, I'm I'm a kind of a nut about about um, uh, these aren't hidden gems, but the, I mean. We haven't even talked about our gastro pubs we have in this town, like Sparrow and Wolf. I mean, which is which is in Partage, which are two really, really uh, elevated gastro puby places on Spring Mountain Road, not Asian, uh, but have done a huge, uh, been a huge success doing very sophisticated food at at not at underneath strip prices. Two other uh, hole in the walls, Manzu, Manzu, which is a, which is um, a little Italian place on, on West Flamingo. I forgot about it. Great pizza, does all their own baking. Again, breads and pizza dough, very strong. And Yummy Kitchen is a, literally, it's not even a hole in the wall. It's inside an Asian shopping center on Spring Mountain Road. <laughs> Yummy Kitchen. 
inside the SF market, which is this big, you know, Asian market. Well, there's, a, there's a half a dozen of them up and down Spring Mountain Road. But this place, you walk in, you look to your right, and it's just three tables. They do uh, Malaysian chili crab and Singapore cuisine and really, really good. So that's they got even more there. Nice. I could do this all day, Jeff. <laughs> <laughs> let's yeah. uh, let's go into the shameless plug portion of this this podcast episode and talk about all the other stuff that you've got going on here. Um, let's start off the podcast. Eat, talk, repeat. Very cool podcast. I love listening to it. I love the conversation that you guys have. Um, you've got some co-hosts on that show. Let's talk a little bit about them and how how you guys all got together for the podcast. Well, it's funny how we got together because because. My politics could not be different than theirs. <laughs> the, the fellow who produces it is Sam Mirajowski, and he's a he's kind of a right wing talk show guy, <laughs> and and uh, but he's funny. Okay, well, you know, and we you know we we disagree because I'm definitely more on the left side of the spectrum than the right of my politics. But we just keep it talking about food, and he loves food. And uh, and we we love to needle each other. And I, you know, from a podcast, you got to keep it interesting. I listen to so many boring ones where people are just they're just drone. I mean, I droned. I apologize to all of you if I droned on too much. But you want to keep it interesting and light and chatty and funny and all that. And Sam does a great job of that. And then we have Ash, the attorney, who's beautiful and smart, which uh, you know, which most women and guys love, and women go. How did she get the whole package? <laughs> she, she's smart, she's talented, and she's pretty. Okay, but she's also very funny. So the three of us just we go around every week, just kind of care, where did you eat, what do you like, and we we try to highlight a lot of new places. I mean, we 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 we'll go back and like I'll I'll, I'll be slamming the steakhouse or Hugo Cellar at one point, but we like to talk about what's new and happening. You know, food news you can use in Las Vegas. So it's a kind of good. Uh, we try to keep it under an hour you know, where you should be eating in Las Vegas and why. And of course, you've got your own website and all of your own uh, social media and blog and everything like that. If people want to find you on there, how do they go about doing that? And, and what are they going to get on there? Well, eatinglv.com, it used to be, it was my blog. It's been my blog for 15, 16 years now. And, you know, the time of the blogs is over. The, the, the time of the blogs was the first 10 years of 2000. That's when I started. But I still keep it up there. I call it my website. I just... When I want to write about something, I, I do. I mean, I, uh, I, like you've read my one, my slam of the steakhouse. Sometimes about two, two or three times a year, I will post like what I call the list, just places I recommend. So just, and then if I have a travel log, I'll go to London. I might write an article, might write a couple thousand words about London or Paris or, or Los Angeles, you know, depending on what I'm doing. And so that's what I, eatinglv.com. Uh, I, I try to post something about once a month now. I used to post, you know, you know, remember blogs back in the day? I was yeah. posting three times a day back then. Um, and then on Twitter, I'm eating Las Vegas at eating Las Vegas. And on Instagram, I'm at John Curtis, my name, J-O-H-N-C-U-R-T-A-S. I know my all my marketing people tell me you should have one, you know, like, you know, one moniker that go across all platforms. But I'm old school and I'm too lazy. <laughs> Well into my sixth decade of life, I'm too lazy to change my old habits now. Too late to change now. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Well, John, I appreciate you taking all this time to, to have a conversation with me and chat about food. I, I really, really do appreciate it. And uh, looking forward to my next trip to Vegas because you and I are going to go out for dinner. Well, now, and now we're best friends. So, yes. And then the, the, one of them will be on me. I promise you that, Jeff. Bon appetit to you and your listeners. And um, good night, Canada. <laughs> 
And that wraps up another episode of Jeff Does Vegas. If you've got feedback on this episode of the show, or any other episode for that matter, or you've got suggestions and ideas for topics you'd like me to cover on the podcast, please feel free to reach out to me via Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram at Jeff Does Vegas. Or drop me an email directly at Jeff at JeffDoesVegas.com. In the meantime, thank you so much for checking out the show. Be sure to follow us wherever you get your podcasts so you'll know the moment new episodes are available. And don't forget to visit JeffDoesVegas.com for past episodes and show notes. My name is Jeff, and this has been Jeff Does Vegas, a Walker New Media production.